morning. Thanks, Bob. Um, good to be with you again this morning to speak, and we're continuing our, our sermon series on Colossians, the book of Colossians, and it's, uh, there we are, it's uh, prospering under pressure. So today we're going to look at when pressure mounts, it reveals our internal foundation. All right, so what happens when you hear the phrase under pressure? Do you get like a rush of anxiety? Do you get, yes, I heard it, yes. Do you hear, do you get that like defiant, like I'm going to battle through this, I'm going to push against it? Maybe some of us older folks get the dun 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 dun. Anybody? The Queen song? Oh, I knew somebody would get it. Agnes got it. Under pressure, Queen from the 70s. Nobody? All right. Um, <laughs> so today we're going to continue to look at our Prospering Under Pressure series, and we're going to see what Paul has to share with us that we can apply to solidify our internal foundations uh, that we need in order in, in our lives in order to prosper. So the church in Colossa was a new church plant, so to speak, of a new religion, Christianity. Uh, there were many pagan secular influences and pressures coming in on them, and their foundation was being attacked, um, which we'll get to in just a little bit. But Paul understands this, and so in this passage that we're going to look at today, he sets out to strengthen what's inside them, uh, inside the believers, to solidify their foundation. Their internal beliefs and their foundation matter because that's where we're going to operate from. That's going to guide our behavior. That's going to be the source of our decision-making, our planning, and our actions while we're here on earth. But why is this important to us? And why do we need to know this? It's important because Christian values are coming more and more under attack and intense pressure in the secular world we live in. We simply... We lose that... We simply need to know that we will come under pressure, not that we might, and that our aim shouldn't just be to avoid it or endure it because God wants us to prosper. So before we look at how we can solidify those internal foundations, do you want me to go to a handheld? Or is it feedback? Or? Okay. Um, I felt we first needed to take a kind of a step back and just acknowledge some of the pressures that we feel around us and that are going on in our society and that, uh, that come against us as Christians. I think as Christians, we can sometimes discount and even look past some of the pressures that come at us, the negative influences of the world, and this can often be, or it can be detrimental to our spiritual health. Uh, listen to this, this quote from Jesus in John 15. He says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belong to it, but you are no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. And that's pretty, pretty bold and straightforward, right? The world, the world ways and following Jesus, they're at odds. So Jesus says, the world hates you because you follow me. So let's look a little deeper at what's, what's going on in our society and some of the pressures that face us as Christians. Now, how many of you would agree with this statement? That we live in a post-Christian world. See some hands raised. Yeah, we live in a post-Christian world. And for me, it's, it kinda, I heard it in a podcast or I read it somewhere, and it just struck me differently. Because I think you know, um, the values in America were built on biblical foundations, the biblical truths principles, yet we're seeing those starting to crumble more and more. And it's been a, a steady you know, decline for that, 
But it really, it, it kind of sunk into me differently and it kind of uh, made me sad. But I think we need to better understand the pressures that we're facing and we need to explore what it means to live in a post-Christian culture. So let's try to unpack that for a little bit before we dive into the passage. Uh, I got a quote here from Mark Sayers. Uh, he's a pastor in Australia, but he does a lot of stuff on, on different culture movements and stuff like that. He does a lot with uh, post-Christianity. He has a book called The Disappearing Church. Let me read this quote to you. It should be up on the screen. It says, post-Christianity attempts to move beyond Christianity while simultaneously feasting on its fruit. Post-Christian culture attempts to retain the soulness of faith while gutting it of the costs, commitments, and restraints that the gospel places on the individual role. Post-Christianity intuitively yearns for the justice and shalom of the kingdom while defending the reign of the individual role. I thought this quote did a good job of pointing out that, that kind of that dichotomy. There's the, the post-Christian uh, movement wants some of the good stuff, the good stuff of the Christian values, yet it's really focused on the individual. And so then those kind of come at odds when we apply the Bible. So in this post-Christian culture, there's an increasing use of terms that might seem biblical, but are being used in ways and applied in ways that are not in line with biblical beliefs. And it can be unsettling, confusing, um, and it's happening because biblical values are at odds with a secular worldview. Um, Mark Sayers had this podcast I listened to not too long ago, and I'm going to give just like kind of a brief overview or, um, of it. It's called, uh, his podcast that he's on was called This Cultural Moment, and the title is The Secular Salvation Schema. And I thought it might help, be helpful for some of you to see the, the kind of compare and contrast between some biblical views and some like, post, uh, post-Christian or just secular views. So it's relating to salvation. So in the Christian salvation perspective, you start with Eden. You have perfection. There's walking in God's presence, and everything's good. And then the fall comes, and you have sin. And sin is what separates us from God. And then we have the cross, we have salvation, so that's uh, dying to ourselves, living a holy life, and that's Jesus' blood allows us to kind of bridge that gap that sin created. And then uh, with that, you have holiness, so we're on that path to becoming more like Jesus, which we won't get to until we're heaven, but that's that journey towards holiness of fleeing from sin. Uh, Tied in with that is redemption. Um, that's linked with discipleship, becoming more like Jesus and be, being obedient to him. And then finally, you have heaven. So there's that journey of, of holiness, redemption, and that's leading us to heaven where we're actually brought back to where the Garden of Eden uh, was in, like, intended. So in the secular view, I like how he kind of compared some of these same terms and he kind of put it with like, what we're seeing in, in our society and our culture. Secular, secularism today is kind of like a revival of the Epicurean uh, way of thinking, the uh, chasing pleasure. And it's really kind of the thought of the world will get better when we can just get rid of belief or get rid of like the religion, religious beliefs. So in the secular view, you also start with a perfection. But in the secular view, the perfection is your inner self or your inner child. At some point, you had happiness uh, before environment wrecked you. So it's that, that idea that you need to get in touch with who you are. And then you go into the fall or sin. Um, sin is, things, uh, is low self-esteem or unhappiness. And it's kind of been redefined. Un, uh, happiness has been uh, redefined as just pleasure. 
And things like trauma, uh, binding commitments, like tradition or responsibility, adulthood, things that stop our happiness, that's sin. That idea of salvation becomes rediscovering myself or my inner self. So getting back to that place where your inner self, there's something there that you're missing. Salvation is figuring out to get rid of those sinful things so that you can get back to just exploring who you are. Holiness, uh, fleeing from sin. So it's fleeing from external uh, identities. It's fleeing from binding commitments or restrictions. Redemption, the idea of redemption then is, uh, in, it's more of an achievement culture where there's uh, metrics that shape our outer self to reflect who we are on the inside, that inner self. So we're trying to do things on the outside so that we can give off that image of that's who we want to be, that's who our inner self is. And that leads to heaven. And heaven is happiness or pleasure. And he goes on to, to point out some different things. And I, I thought one thing was interesting where he said, you can start to combine these things and they, they sound biblical or they sound Christian because you can say, well, I want more of Jesus. I want more of Jesus. We want to pursue it. I was like, okay, yeah, that's good. That's what we want. We want to pursue Jesus. But if you want to pursue Jesus for this, more on the secular vein, it's I want to pursue Jesus so he can get rid of the things that take away my happiness, get rid of the things that, uh, the, the responsibilities. And it's about me. It's about what, how it affects me. Instead of, in the Christian walk, it's about dying to yourself and surrendering, surrendering to Jesus. So there, you can start combining them, and I think it gets kind of uh, blurry at times. So I thought that might be a little helpful for you guys to see that um, played out. Um, but we kind of have to ask ourselves the question of, are we trying to be in alignment with God's word, or are we trying to be in alignment with the world and the worldly views? So more and more in a post-Christian world, those two things are becoming mutually exclusive. If our views and behaviors are aligned with and accepted by the world, maybe even celebrated, it should set off an internal alarm that, wow, am I drifting away from biblical values? Now, we shouldn't be surprised that we're facing pressures from the world, right? In the Bible, it's, it's mentioned a, a bunch of times. I'm going to put three verses up here that, that show that we're going to be facing trials and tribulations in the world. James 4.4, 4, James writes, You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. I mean, he emphasizes it twice, right? It's that thing. Enem uh, if you're aligned with the, the world, you're an enemy of God. And it's pretty straightforward right there. In 1 Peter 2.11, he says, Dear friends, I warn you as temporary residents and foreigners to keep away from worldly desires that wage war against your very soul. I like how Peter talks about us, that this world isn't our home, right? We're temporary residents here. We're on our, our journey towards heaven. And while we're here, we're going to have war. He has that, that, that um, wants to prepare them, prepare their minds and their hearts for conflict. We're at war for our souls. And then in James 1.27, um, I read this one recently and I had a different, a different take on it. It says, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Now, when I've read it in the past, I've always stopped at the orphans and widows part. And I think part of it is that's just not my natural bent on the, the compassion, the care, and that. So I felt like oh, I, I want more of it. I need, that's like a weakness in me. So I felt a draw to that. And then at the same time, what I just, when I read this recently, I kind of felt that that second part, I've always discounted or read past it because that part's easier for me. 
And so you might be on one side or the other, but I, I didn't realize that the caring for orphans and widows is just, just as um, genuine and pure to the sight of God as it is to resist the temptations and the pull and the struggle of the world. And we need to be aware that living out our faith in a fallen world is going to create pressure and it's actually going to increase pressure on us. But God does want us to prosper in that situation. So we're going to look at the passage in, today in Colossians to see how solidifying what's on the inside can help us prosper under pressure. Okay, so the church in Colossae was coming under attack from different groups and Paul wanted to make sure that their foundational truth um, were that they were being uh, grounded in those. And all foundations of truth in the Bible lead back to Jesus. Right, kids? <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> so the first point that we're gonna, that Paul's gonna, uh, we're gonna pull from this passage is when pressure mounts, remember that Christ is key. So we're gonna look at first, uh, we're gonna look at Colossians chapter one, verses 15 through 23. You have your Bibles, you can open them, but I'll be reading it as well. So he goes on to uh, write a little poem about describing about uh, who Jesus is. So it says, Christ is the, inv the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else. And he holds all creation together. Christ is also the head of the church, which is his body. He is the beginning, supreme over all who rise from the dead. So he is first in everything. For God in all his fullness was pleased to live in Christ. And through him, God reconciled everything to himself. He made peace with everything in heaven and on earth by means of Christ's blood on the cross. So the church in Colossae, they were actually facing something called syncretism. So syncretism is, uh, the, is combining ideas from different uh, religions or philosophies. So they had like Judaism, uh, Christianity, and Greek thought that they were having uh, influence them. And so one of the key issues confronting the church was actually how Jesus was being viewed. So the biblical uh, foundations of Jesus were starting to get distorted. So Paul wants to set that straight. So some of those uh, distortions were that God wouldn't have come to earth in bodily form because matter is evil. God did not create the world because he would not have created evil. Christ was not the unique son of God, but rather an intermediary between God and people. And another one was their refusal to see Christ as the source of salvation. Instead, people could only find God through special and secret knowledge. So I think if you look at those four, you see a lot of Greek influence. So like the, a lot of the Greek uh, philosophy was starting to infiltrate them. And, you know, it's similar in religions that have come, come since then. Uh, there's religions that are going on right now that they take Jesus. And it's interesting that a lot of religions incorporate Jesus in some way, but they distort him. So uh, in Hare Krishna, they, Jesus is one of their gurus, but Hare Krishna is their god. In Islam, Jesus is only a prophet of Allah, and he was superseded by Muhammad. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus was created as Archangel Michael, a lesser god, not capital G God, and not Jehovah. 
Mormons uh, believe Jesus was born in heaven as the spirit child of Elohim, the heavenly father, by one of his wives. And Jesus' brother was Lucifer, who became Satan. And Jesus is just one of many lower G gods. And in Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard taught that Jesus was a false memory implanted into humans. But since uh, Jesus is foundational to Christians and our beliefs, Paul lays out some counter-arguments to those kind of influences that we're starting to infiltrate because he knows that they need to have a proper foundation of who Jesus is to build on it for their faith. So Paul, Paul points out um, and relays some, some, some uh, examples of Jesus' character. He's the creator of heaven and earth. He's preeminent over the new creation. He's the greatest wonder of all, the fullness of God in the flesh. And his blood reconciles everything with God and brings peace. And we have to ask ourselves, are there foundational views of Christ that have been watered down or changed inside of us? You know, we had a biblical worldview class earlier this summer, back in June, and we looked at a, a, a movement, or even a, we can call it a religion, called progressive Christianity. And I say it that way, it's not just progressive views, it's actually a different movement because of the this same, this same issue. They start to change some of the basic biblical facts of who Jesus is. Um, they start to preach that he wasn't fully God in the flesh. He's not the only way to eternal life, kind of that, that method of, or that view of all roads lead to heaven. And he wasn't necessarily raised from the dead. And that one, they can kind of, some other beliefs they have are, they have a low view of sin. So if they have a low view of sin, you don't really need a savior, or you have a low view of what a savior is. So there's these different perspectives. Um, they have another one that they overemphasize God's love. So God's love is part of his character, but they overemphasize that, and then they, they don't, uh, because they don't want to deal with things like his justice or his holiness and things like that, so then they start discrediting uh, the infallible, infallibility of the Bible and things like that. But um, we need to ask ourselves, are we holding on to biblical truths? Because it's a slippery slope when we start going off into those directions. Um, are we anchoring to those truths deep inside uh, of us as foundations so when pressure mounts against us, we will be able to prosper? Are we using critical thinking to spot errant beliefs? Now, Paul knew that the church in Colossae needed to be reminded of the supremacy of Christ and to hold that as foundational to their faith. A proper understanding of Christ is key in our lives and will help us when reading through the passages that follow in the book of Colossians. So then Paul moves on to verses 21 and 22, and he shifts to talk about kind of the believers and what their life was like before. He's, he says this, This includes you who were once far away from God, you were his enemies, separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. Yet now he has reconciled you to himself through the death of Christ in the physical body. As a result, he has brought you into his own presence, and you are a holy and blameless as you stand before him without a single fault. So the second point we can take from this passage is that when pressure mounts, remember that our past has been dealt with. So our past before we accepted Christ has been dealt with. And when pressure mounts, like past regrets, bad habits, condemnation from the devil can start to creep in and make us want to kind of go back to the, the way we were. And that weakens our foundation. That takes away uh, the foundation of who Christ is in our lives. 
The devil wants us to view and respond to pressure in that way, which is from our flesh. He wants us to re, uh, react in anger and malice and slander and greed and lust and those kind of things, the opposite of the fruit of the Spirit. So I'm going to do a little demonstration of maybe what that might look like and help you guys get an understanding of that. So this Coke bottle right here represents our life before Christ. So it's kind of dark and gunky, and as I open it, you see the bubbles start to foam in there, right? So that's who we were before. So keep that in mind as that's our life before Christ. And I got some Mentos here. So, oh yeah, some of these kids have seen this, right? So I had to be careful that I didn't go too crazy with this because I didn't want to make a mess. But if I have a couple Mentos, these Mentos right here represent pressure. So pressure is going to come at us in, in the world, right? It's not a choice. Like I said earlier, it's not if, it's just when and how much. Uh, how often but this is how when we were before Christ this is how we would handle pressure like that right it make things bubble over we would react from our flesh from the, the gunk inside us so and not all things would make us erupt the same but you know we can manage it and we can put a, ma a, a show on that oh I can handle that or I can stuff it but really we're operating from what's inside and that is not of Christ now this is who we are in Christ. Like it says in the passage that God sees us as holy and blameless without a single fault. So this is the way God sees us, right here. This bottle, pure and holy and blameless. So pressure comes at us this way. What happens? Nothing, right? So that's when we're operating from the fruit of the Spirit. So when we're operating from the fruit of the Spirit, life is good. But that's who we were. This is how God sees us. But here on this earth, we're not there yet, right? We're on that journey to being holy, to being sanctified. But it's a journey and it's a path. So as we um, kind of discard some of those old ways, we, we pour those out a little bit. They're gone. Um, we go to the inner healing team and we get deliverance and we get the PMT and some more, right? Some more stuff gets taken out of us, some of the gunk and we're, we're dealt with. We've dealt with some of our things that were passed down to us generationally. We're learning how to just communicate better, right? So we're slowly getting rid of that stuff. And as we do that, I got to be careful on this one too. As we do that, then there's space in there for God to come in and pour himself into our lives. And so as we do that... You might, might or might not be able to see, but the, the, the gunk is not as dark as it used to be, and the bubbles aren't as strong. And so then as you have pressures of the world come at you, up in the front, you can probably see, right? There's still some bubbles. There's a little bit of bubbling, but it's not erupting, right? So as we're on that journey towards sanctification and becoming more like Jesus and surrendering our lives to him, that's, that's what's happening inside us. We're operating more from the fruit of the Spirit and less from our flesh. And um, it's important as we, as we remember that, um, that reactions, uh, they're going to be used. The pressures of the world uh, don't cause the same reactions as they used to, and we can actually experience the fruit of the Spirit. As we better understand that and live it out, we're capable of handling pressure in a different way because our foundation has changed. So that foundation in Christ is key because it deals with our past and we don't have to operate from that anymore. 
And then Paul concludes this, this portion uh, with verse 23. He says, but you must continue to believe this truth and stand firmly in it. Don't drift away from the assurance you received when you heard the good news. The good news has been preached all over the world, and I, Paul, have been appointed as God's servant to proclaim it. I like in this verse how Paul reminds the reader that believing the truth and standing firm in it is our choice. So we need to remember that when pressure mounts, standing firm in the truth is our choice. Paul uses uh, some action words to kind of emphasize that. So in, this, in that verse, he says, you must continue. So the continue implies that it's not just a one-time thing. You don't just do it once, but it's continual. You, you, you keep doing that. Uh, you keep believing the truth and, and standing in it. The second word is stand firm. So when I think of stand firm, I think of my feet, right? So I put my feet like this, and I'm narrow. I don't have a wide base. My foundation is weak. If somebody came up, somebody wanted to come up and try and push me over, I've got the youth up here. They're all shy now. So if I got pushed, I would fall over easily, right? But if I had my, my base wide and someone pushes me, I'm still going to feel the effects of it. I'm going to move a little bit, but I'm not going to fall over. So I like how he, he reminds the reader they need to stand firm in truth. And the third one is don't drift away. So don't drift away from the assurance you received. Um, I like this one. I, I use this analogy a lot of that, that being one degree off course. So if you're, this is your course and this is truth, and you're one degree off, like you, you might think my hands are touching right now, but they're not. But as we go further away and I'm one degree off, it becomes further away from the truth. So truth helps us to, um, or don't drifting away, it's a, it's a choice. It's, it's easy to kind of just, we see the truth there and like, oh yeah, I know I'm a little bit further away than I used to be, but it's no big deal. But that, that concept of don't drift away, drifting away is like a passive thing. Drifting is just, it happens because you're not paying attention. But if you pay attention and you are, are in alignment with, I mean, we're all going to have moments where we're like this, but we just don't want to do this. We want to be able to, to re refocus ourselves on God's truth. I don't have time to go into detail, but uh, Job in the Bible is a great example of somebody who stood his ground in truth, and it was his choice. He had his friends telling him to um, curse God, to just uh, admit that he did something wrong that he knew inside he didn't, and yet he chose to stand on those biblical or those internal truth, that foundation, and then you see in the story that God honored him. Um, another example that I had God give me was the movie Chariots of Fire. So in the movie Chariots of Fire, um, actually, I, I was kind of just preparing for this message in August, just trying to think of concepts. Okay, what, what am I going to talk about in this passage? And now that movie just popped in my head. I'm like, I haven't thought of that movie forever. And so I'm starting to get used to, like, God does that with me. He just pops in these things, and so I'm like, okay, I'll explore it. So um, as a family, like my kids, and I don't think Mimo had ever watched it either, so we watched it as a family, and it was really cool. I remember as a kid in the mid-'80s, I think we had, like, our first VCR player, and my, my parents wanted to watch that movie. It was a, you know, critically acclaimed, won a lot of awards, and I remember watching it as a kid, and I was impacted by it, and it's an awesome story. If you haven't watched it, I recommend it. But if you haven't, I'm still going to kill the story a little bit for you. Um, but in the, in the movie, one of the main characters is Eric uh, Lytle, and he's a Scottish runner. And his, his passion is running, and he wants to run for the Lord. He's a devout Christian. He comes from missionaries, a missionary family in China, but he's back in, uh, in Scotland, England, uh, the UK for schooling. 
and he decides to forego his missionary calling for, for a season because he wants to run for the Lord. And he, his desire and his goal is to make the Olympic team. And he does. And he finds out that the, 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 the first heat is going to be on a Sunday. And he decides he can't do that. That's, it was an internal foundation, an internal conviction that he had that that would be dishonoring to the Lord in his beliefs. So he had people on the outside putting pressure on him, saying, it's only one Sunday. God will understand. Do it for your country. And all these different things are coming at him. And yet he says, no, I can't. Even though he had been training for years to get to this place where he could compete in the Olympics. So he gives up his spot. And um, later in the movie, you find out that one of his teammates gives up a spot in a, in a, di a different race. And he's actually able to run in the 400, where his gifting is actually the 100. But he, uh, he goes to run that race. And in the movie, they, they show an American uh, sprinter, one of his chief competitors, hands him a note. I did a little research. It actually wasn't the, his competitor. It was a, actually an American trainer that came up to him before the race started, and he handed him a slip of paper. And on the slip of paper, it said, the good book says, he that honors me, I will honor. And that's related to 1 Samuel 2.30. It says, but I will honor those who honor me, and I will despise those who think lightly of me. Now, these are examples of how it takes courage and it takes steps of faith to stand firm in biblical truth. Along with this idea uh, to take active steps to stand in truth, to choose truth, I did want to speak just really briefly about the concept of truth and lies. Because I think in order to know how to stand in truth, we have to be able to differentiate between truth and lies. Um, are you aware that truth and lies are powerless on their own? Kids, do you believe that, that truth and lies are powerless? Get some, uh, I don't know. <laughs> They're powerless until what? Until you put belief behind them. So a truth, a truth is powerless until you put belief in it. A lie is powerless until you put belief to it. The only, the only way to get power is, um, oh yeah, so are you putting your beliefs in truth or lies? And we need to remember that the devil's sneaky. He doesn't just put blatant lies out because those are obvious and we would be like, no, nah, no, I'm not doing that. He, he uses partial truths and I would say even mostly truths. And that's how he gets us to be deceived. I'm going to read one more quote from a book I just read recently called The Truth About Lies and the Lies About Truth. Very, it's an awesome book. It's very heady. So if you like to think a lot, I had to stop a lot to pause and take it in, but it's a very good book. But I thought this quote's going to kind of bring us full circle back to where I started with this, this idea of living in a post-Christian uh, post culture. So we'll kind of wrap up with this. Uh, it's David Tackle, and he's, he says this. One of the more pervasive religious distortions regards our general accommodation to the world. An alarming number of Christians are very prone to viewing their faith much like a cafeteria plan. They pick and choose which values they wish to adopt from Scripture and which they will adopt from the dominant culture. This eclectic approach to faith is only possible because of the unexamined assumption that we are in charge of our doctrine, dogma, and morals rather than God. Much of the appeal lies in the ability to blend in with the surrounding culture, minimize our discomfort, and still hold the illusion of being Christ-like in one's behavior. Now, pretty, I mean, it's some pretty powerful statements he puts in there, some observations, and it's interesting that this book was written in 2008, 
And I would say that these observations are even more powerful and, and, and um, demonstrated in our society now than when he was, uh, wrote the book. Um, I, d I don't want to discount the strong appeal of the post-Christian approach to God. Picking values from uh, scripture to, uh, and to adopt from scripture and values to adopt from culture. I mean, there's, you get the best of both worlds, right? But God doesn't allow us to do that. God doesn't allow us to just say, oh yeah, you can, just, you can choose those. As long as you just choose me overall, I'm okay with that. No, God wants us to, to follow his way and the ways of the world, like he said earlier, are opposite of God's. Um, so as the body of Christ, how much are we trying to blend in with our surrounding culture? How much are we trying to minimize our discomfort? Does this come at the expense of God's values and truth? Is our Christian-like behavior an illusion in God's eyes, or is it rooted in truth? Some tough questions, but I think those are ones that we have to sit with and be able to answer. So how do we keep on course? The Colossian church that uh, had Paul speaking into them to check on their internal foundations uh, and their belief system. Who or what do you have in your life that are checking in on your internal foundations of your faith or of your soul? Are you in regular fellowship with other believers through things throughout the week, with things like church, small groups, discipleship groups, or even just challenging spiritual conversations? Are you keeping yourself in the Bible so that you know what God's truth is when various worldly voices try to tell you partial truths? Are you applying critical thinking skills? Or maybe you haven't even put your trust in God yet and you're experiencing the pressures of the life and of life without a, a solid foundation in Christ. You're feeling the general dissatisfaction that there's got to be more to this life, that God's tugging on your heart. And God says, I'm that peace that's missing and I can give you true peace. If that's you and you're here, um, reach out to one of us. Reach out to one of the pastors or somebody that brought you. Or if you're online, uh, go to our website and you know, email one of us. We'd love to, to chat with you and try to help you uh, develop that internal foundation in Christ. Now, this, this message felt pretty heavy when I was putting it together, and I thought, how can I lighten this up a little bit? And this morning in the, in the um, intercessor's time, uh, Nancy said, the joy of the Lord is my strength. She said, there's got to have that sense of joy. And when we're operating from the fruit of the Spirit, this stuff doesn't seem as heavy. But when we're operating from our flesh, it seems really weighty. But the fruit of the Spirit, is, it has joy and it has peace. And that's where we need to keep our, our, um, our foundation. I did find this, this passage in Luke 6. It sounds like encouragement, but then it doesn't at the same time. But I thought, these are Jesus' words, so I'm going to share them with you. Luke 6, 22 and 23, he says, What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy. Yes, leap for joy, for a great reward awaits you in heaven. Again, when we're operating from the fruit of the Spirit, we can see that and say, yeah, that's encouragement. But when we're operating from our flesh in a, a place of a weak foundation, that seems like, oh, that's a struggle, I can't do that. So let's try to build our foundation where we can take that and make that um, bring joy and peace to our lives. So in closing, we don't just want to have pressure uh, expose what's on the inside. We want that pressure to help us prosper. 
And to do, uh, to do that, we need to have strong internal foundations in, uh, based on Christ and his truth. So we're going to have a little application uh, time now. So God has placed inside each of us internal foundations. So there's things from maybe when you accepted Christ, there's things that have been along your journey that God wants you to have when times get rough, when you have doubts, when you have fear and anxiety. He wants you to be able to remember those things and hold dear to them as part of your foundation. So during the, the last worship time, I'm going to ask that you just sit with the Lord. Maybe when I even just said that, you already know, oh, it's this, this is my foundation. And maybe ask him for some others. Uh, try and get a couple of them. But I want you to sit with the Lord, ask him, what are some internal foundations that you've put inside me? Um, if you're feeling stuck with that, we're going to have some, uh, uh, some prayer ministers up here, some prayer team. Um, come up and ask them for maybe a prophetic word or just have them pray with you. And as they pray with you, hopefully the Lord then will like, uh, take away that blockage or that disconnect and he'll be able to share something with you. Uh, so, so spend some time doing that. And then the second part of it is take home. So you'll see there's a couple of tables up here. If you haven't been up close to the front, there's bars of soap. So what are we doing with bars of soap? We're not washing ourselves. Bob is thinking we're going to get clean. But we want to we memorialize these. So these thoughts, I want you to think of how can I memorialize that and make like a little monument. So I'll show you one that I did. So mine is I, I carved out a cross. And I'll explain this to you. Um, when I, one, one foundational piece that I have is, the short story is I was in a, a, a setting where we were worshiping the Lord, and he asked me, um, are you desperate for me? And I said, I, in my mind, I wanted to reply like this, yes, I'm desperate for you, but I knew that would be a lie, and I, would, I wouldn't be a full truth, even though I wanted it to be. And so I just sat with it, and I said, oh, man, why can't I answer, why can't I answer the way I want to? I didn't sit with guilt or condemnation. I just had this heavy feeling. And then it felt like 10 minutes. It was probably like a, a minute or two later. The Lord gave me an image of Jesus on the cross. So I, I get this image of Jesus on the cross like this. And then he said the words, this is how desperate I am for you. And so on mine, I wrote, I am desperate for you. And that's, my, that's, my that's one of my key markers in life. And... And it was really cool actually doing this. I, I kind of needed to see how this, how this worked. Damon gave me the idea to do this. I'm, I'm artistically challenged. So I thought, well, I could do a cross. That's not that hard. But um, So we have pencils up here with erasers taken out of them. So that's your carving tool. So I don't want anybody to say, oh, I don't have something to do it with. You can use something you have at home, a butter knife, or you can use a screwdriver or whatever. But I don't want anybody to say, I, I don't have something to do it with. But I did this. And then I had the pleasure of sharing it with my family because I, I wanted my kids to do it. And so I don't know that I've ever told them this story. But that's, that's a foundational piece of, of my life that, that I want to pass on uh, part of my legacy. And so they got to they gotta witness that and they got to hear that from me and they get to see it. And so then I had them, them do it, and um, Eli said I couldn't share his, but he, he got one, and, and he did it, and I said, okay, well, that seems, on the surface, yeah, it's okay, it seems like it fits, but why is that an impactful thing for you? And then he shared with me, like, how it, how it was meaningful, and I'm like, oh, I can see how that's an, uh, like a marker for his life. 
And then Ezra, uh, he said I could share his. So he, he, he said the Lord uh, told him the fruit of the Spirit. And so then I'm like, okay, well, what, what about the fruit of the Spirit? And then he said he had a picture of a heart. So he's like, oh, maybe it's love. So he just, he carved out a heart. And for him, you know, now Mimo and I can have something to, to pray into his life for him into that marker. So I encourage you to sit with the Lord, find out what those markers are in your life, and then come up. Uh, this isn't meant to do in the, in the auditorium, please, because it'll make a big mess. But take them home and do that. And if you're a family, do it together, and then share, share with each other what your markers are. So let's, I'm going to close in prayer. So the worship team, you can come up. Uh, the, prayer, the prayer ministers will be up here, like I mentioned. Please don't hesitate to come up and ask for prayer if you feel like I just I'm having a blockage or I can't come up with those markers. Uh, they would love to pray for you. Father God, thank you so much for those foundational pieces that you put in our lives. Lord, it is it's a heavy it's a heavy thing to think about that we're we're in a world that's against us. When we're for you, the world is against us and you know, we might want to be people pleasers or we might just want to get along. We don't want to have confrontation or discomfort, but that's not, that's not our option. You called us to stand for your truth and in your truth. And so as we do that, keep our foundations solid. Keep our foundations based on you, Christ. May we forget our past and know that it's been dealt with. And may we remember that um, it's always a choice. And God, you are so gracious even when we sometimes choose to, to drift away that you welcome us back with open arms just like the prodigal son, the story. You say, it's okay. I, I know it's tough. But I love you. So God, just as we continue to, to learn and develop what it is to prosper under pressure, may we just know that um, your grace surrounds us. And so I just pray that your, your Holy Spirit that you would just touch people's hearts and give them those foundational pieces that each one of them have inside. And bless this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Joining us for our online service. Hope you will join us in person sometime. It would be great to see you and meet you. Don't forget to subscribe to our Catalyst YouTube channel so you don't miss out on anything. And be blessed this week, and as always, thank you, Jesus!